When two laws conflict with one another, which law takes precedence? Which law is enforced? Think of that word, quote, enforced, end quote. The answer is embedded within the word itself. Sovereign is the law that decides. The law with power is the law that's enforced. Yamamoto Sunetomo in 1688 knew this well. This is the way he illustrated this truth to his young disciple, quote, once, when a group of five samurai were traveling to the capital together in the same boat, it happened that their boat struck a commoner's ship late at night. Six sailors from the ship leapt aboard the samurai boat and loudly demanded that the samurai give up their boat's anchor in accord with the code of the sea. Hearing this, the samurai ran forward, with their swords grinning in the cool night air. The warriors yelled, The code of the sea is something for people like you! Do you think that we samurai are going to let you take equipment from a boat-carrying warriors who take and give blood? We will cut you down and throw you into the sea to the very last man! And with that, all the sailors fled back to their ship. The samurai kept their anchor. Sovereign is the law that decides. From the Hagakuri by Yamamoto Sunetomo. Hello and welcome to Battlecast. I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and today I'm recounting one of the bloodiest genocidal wars in human history. It's called the Imjin War, also called the Japanese Invasions of Korea. It's a war filled with massacres and actual pyramids of dead bodies resembling the Hill of the Slain from Tolkien's Silmarillion. Hundreds of thousands will die, many more will be enslaved. At the end of this series, Korea will lie in a smoking ruin. And the Korean people may have ceased to exist as an independent people if it weren't for one man named Admiral Yi Sun Sin. This is his story too. And it's the story of Toyotomi Hideyoshi, the great warrior and unifier of Japan, who rose from the rank of a small-time village samurai to conquer not only Japan, but also Korea. He had ambitions of conquering the entire world, literally, pushing on past the giant slave market formerly known as China to conquer the entire earth itself. Hideyoshi really did plan to conquer the world, a second Alexander. And how many of you have heard of these two great men, men who saved nations, and men who threatened entire continents. Well, you're going to hear about them tonight, but before we can do that, I've got to thank Bob and Catherine from Spokane, Washington, and Brian from Calgary, Alberta, for buying us around. And if you want to buy us around, head over to thebattlecast.com and hit that Make a Donation button. But now, genocide, slavery, Bushido ethics, it's the M-Gen War. The war between Korea and Japan was a long time coming. Jin Wong Kim provides an excellent summary of the conflicts between the two nations leading up to the Imjin War, so I'll just quote him, quote, Already in 1510, as a result of the Korean king's tightening grip on Japanese trade, Japanese residents in the three main Korean ports had rebelled. 
At the time, Korean leaders felt threatened by the Japanese demand to expand trade and by the growing number of Japanese residents in the three ports. After this rebellion was suppressed, the Korean king cut in half the number of Japanese ships permitted in the ports and limited the volume of rice and beans to be given or traded with the Japanese. The result was occasional large-scale attacks by Japanese pirates on the Korean coast. In 1555, the Japanese plundered Korea's southwest coastal regions, but were repelled by Korean forces, suffering sporadic Japanese attacks on its coasts. In 1517, the king established the Border Defense Council, jointly staffed by civil and military officials, which was responsible for all matters relating to national defense. By the end of the 16th century, however, Korean society as a whole was accustomed to centuries of peace and sank into complacency and luxury, end quote. Yu Seon-yong, a member of the upper class and prime minister of Korea during the war, kept an eyewitness account of his experiences during the conflict. This is how he describes the state of Korea before the outbreak of hostilities, quote, At that time we had been at peace for many years and were accustomed to both internal and external peace and tranquility. The people therefore disliked laboring on the defenses of the realm and thought it worthless. They often performed very poor work and murmurs of discontent filled the streets. I I was concerned about our ill preparations and I brought my concerns to General Sin Rip, a man in charge of preparing our defenses. I asked him, Sooner or later, there's going to be war, and since you are responsible for military affairs, what do you think about the power of the enemy today? Rip laughed and treated this question extremely lightly and appeared completely free from anxiety. I said, that is not the right attitude. Formerly, the Japanese depended on short weapons alone, but now they have muskets and archers who are effective at a distance. We can't treat this matter lightly. Rip was annoyed with my persistence and hastily said, Even if they have muskets, they can't hit anything with them. Come on! End quote. Thousands of Koreans would demonstrate the falseness of Rip's blithe proposition with their tender, unarmored flesh, such as the slow rot engendered by luxury. It happens over time, the way rust slowly spreads across a rifle barrel. Jinwon Kim picks up the story, quote, at this very point, a new political development in Japan brought the return of centralized control. In 1590, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, a peasant who had risen through the bloody samurai civil wars of Japan, had emerged as the power behind the throne, established mastery over the entire Japanese nation. He was known then and now as, quote, the great unifier of Japan, end quote. Immediately after conquering Japan, he turned his eagle eyes to China, and after that, the entire world itself, an Asian Alexander. He decided to invade China indirectly through Korea. Apart from his desire to make Japan the dominant power in East Asia, he also wished to distract his warlords, restless from inactivity, from internal conflicts. Thus, he demanded that Korea give him free passage to China or suffer bloody conquest if the Korean king refused. The Koreans, looking at the 30-mile-long moat between them and Japan, just laughed when they read Hideyoshi's demands. Who was this ignorant peasant to dictate to the Confucian king of Korea? Soon they would find out exactly who Hideyoshi was, and millions would weep for their complacency. Such are the dangers when the state is given over to riches and pie-in-the-sky academic dreaming end. Quote. 
Hideyoshi's letter has come down to us, and I think it's worth quoting to give you an idea of the man who single-handedly conquered and unified Japan. Before I quote the letter, though, I want to tell you a little bit about the man who did unify Japan. W.G. Beasley does a fine job of summarizing Hideyoshi's career in his book, The Japanese Experience, so I'll just bodlerize him. Quote, Hideyoshi's predecessor and mentor, Oda Nobunaga, had conquered almost half of the provinces of Japan before his assassination. The assassination of Nobunaga was typical of the age in June 1582. Nobunaga spent the night at Kyoto Temple. One of his senior vassals led a contingent of reinforcements near Kyoto when he suddenly turned aside from the road and attacked Nobunaga. A spattering of musket fire at dawn was the first indication of danger. Caught without a proper escort, the battle-hardened Nobunaga fought his ground alone, slaying many lesser men as they tried to bring him down. The way a lion's massive paws bring down the biting faces of first one and then another wild dog as a pack attacks him. But at last, Nobunaga was mortally wounded, and his enemies, unable to defeat him in combat, set fire to the temple itself in order to kill their master. Nobunaga, seeing the statues and ornate carvings bursting into pumpkin-orange flame all around him, knelt down amidst the burning priceless beauty and committed suicide. The news quickly reached his senior commander, Hideyoshi, who wisely kept the death of Nobunaga a secret. At that time, Hideyoshi was making war on a group of rebels when he received the message, quick as the wind. He made peace with the rebels and conducted a forced march on Kyoto, where he killed the vassal who had treacherously attacked Nobunaga. Within two weeks, Hideyoshi was master in the place of his former lord. Now Hideyoshi, a lowly village samurai, was lord and master of 32 of Japan's 68 provinces. Hideyoshi wasted no time. He made peace with one group of rebels while he made war on another. Like a second Lincoln, he preferred to fight one war at a time. He was adopted into the Fujiwara imperial clan, and thus his rule was given imperial authority. And then he decided to unify the rest of Japan. It took just two campaigns. The first campaign was against a man named Shumazu. It was launched in the spring of 1587 by an expedition of 200,000 men. It was a huge achievement to even feed such a massive army without industrial development, let alone conquer entire provinces with them. Shimizu was driven back and forced to reluctantly sue for peace. Hideyoshi granted him generous terms with the provision that key points in Shimizu's domain were occupied by Hideyoshi's troops, thereby ensuring his rule because Hideyoshi knew, in a way I wish the rulers of the EU and the United Nations could understand, that sovereign is he who can enforce his rule. With troops at all the commanding points, Hideyoshi could give generous terms today and take them away six months later, the way Darth Vader constantly changed terms with Lando Calrissian in the film The Empire Strikes Back. With Shimizu defeated, only one region in northeast Japan needed to be pacified. The key to the area was the Hojo region. When it refused to submit at the end of 1589, Hideyoshi sent another army out to make it submit. The Hojo army decided to withstand Hideyoshi's massive armies by retreating into the imposing Odawara fortress. It was a horrible move, as retreating into a fortress usually is. Hideyoshi's men had European-style cannon they had adopted from the Portuguese, along with European firearms, and they were well supplied from the ocean itself. By May in 1590, they had enclosed Odawara castle within a double ring of earthworks. 
It did not take long for Hideyoshi's siege to break the will of the Hojo. At the beginning of August, the castle surrendered. The Hojo leaders committed suicide, and their lands were transferred to a loyal vassal of Hideyoshi. Now Hideyoshi was the undisputed master of all Japan. Hideyoshi set about putting his finger in everyone's pie. The great lords of Japan were required to swear allegiance to him and sent hostages to live with him in his capital, much like the political situation at the beginning of the book series A Game of Thrones. Political leaders had their lands increased, taken away, or transferred, as Hideyoshi decreed. In this way, he provided an enormous amount of personal property for himself and his followers, but also a firm grip on those who might seek to challenge his authority. Then, in 1588, Hideyoshi sought to disarm his own citizens. It was now forbidden for anyone except the samurai to own swords. The event itself is called the Sword Hunt, and samurai went from village to village confiscating weapons from the populace, thereby making them easier to rule over. A people without the capacity to resist are easily controlled, and so Hideyoshi made sword control a key element of his rule. From this point on, there was a line drawn across Japan's social structure. Those above it were samurai, armed and privileged. Those below it were commoners, who were neither their social nor their political equals. Without arms, the peasants lacked power. Without power, they were less equal to the man who did wield arms. The same is true in Canada, New Zealand, and Nigeria today. If equality is really what a nation seeks, and it rarely is, a high number of weapons among the populace will greatly increase the level of power equality within a nation. It is empirically true. Thus it was, thus it is, thus it ever shall be. Okay, so now I'm going to read you the letter Hideyoshi wrote to the rulers of Korea. As I read this letter, I want you to notice the complete and total confidence Hideyoshi presents. He simply assumes the Koreans will submit to his commands. The thought of the Koreans resisting him is hardly even considered in the letter. Here it is, quote, In this world, human existence has rarely attained a hundred years since ancient times. Why should I gloomily spend my life here? Now this is Hideyoshi talking from Japan. I shall invade China and will have the culture and laws of my country adopted in the 400 provinces of China itself, bestowing on the Chinese people the benevolent imperial government of our country for millions of years to come. This is the plan I have in mind. Your country is the first to come and pay homage to our court, and this shows that whoever looks far into the future will have no sorrow at all. But I shall not forgive even distant countries and islands in the middle of the seas themselves if they are late in coming to pay respect to me, their rightful sovereign. When I proceed to China, if you... At the head of your army will join us, the ties between our neighboring countries will be even further strengthened. We have received the tribute you sent us, end quote. That last part, the so-called tribute, was just a gift the Korean king sent to Hideyoshi. Hideyoshi simply interpreted the gift as a tribute and a sign of Korea's submission to him because he's so great and awesome in every way. And so Hideyoshi emptied Japan of warriors and sent them across the 30-mile-wide Korean Strait, separating his divine ethereal majesty from mainland Asia. The campaign was the largest ever mounted in Japanese history up to that point. The expeditionary force alone totaled 250,000 men, a force that dwarfs the largest armies of the American Civil War. For example, Robert E. Lee had about 70,000 men at Gettysburg. Simply housing and feeding these men required the construction of a massive invasion base near present-day Karatsu 
in southwest Japan. The huge base was built in just six months. Rice was gathered and stored to feed half a million people. As Martin van Kleffeld notes, the fact that the Japanese were even capable of achieving the continued supply of this massive army was a major achievement of any human civilization. I can tell you it was exceedingly difficult for the United States to supply this many men with near total control of the oceans and extensive railroad networks. The Japanese achieved this without the benefit of railroads. Discipline, hard work, and intelligence can work wonders for any civilization willing to harness them. Against this unprecedented evasion force, Korea's thin defenses sheltered a peaceful nation which was almost paralyzed by complacency and self-interest. The nation was also weakened by unforgivable factional infighting. As historian Stephen Turnbull notes, the cracks in Korea's defense system had been exposed by border raiders and pirates, but the government had done nothing to repair the defenses. The Korean response to the Japanese invasion was completely inadequate. One might say criminal, considering the entire purpose of any government is to provide protection. There was no way Korea's scattered force could stem the tide of the most ruthless and professional army in contemporary Asia. And in May 1592, that ruthless army came over the thin moat protecting Korea. The first shots of the Imjin War were fired against the defenses of Pusan, the vast natural harbor that is still South Korea's main port today. The Japanese fleet rested overnight in Pusan Harbor, completely unmolested by the Korean Navy, whose local commander, Wan Kyun, was an incompetent coward. This is an important point because when Yu Sun Nyong, one of the few competent Korean political leaders, notified the Border Defense Council that the nation was totally ill-equipped to stop an army of battle-hardened samurai who were a few weeks away from landing in southern Korea, the other members of the council absent-mindedly declared that the Korean Navy would stop the Japanese from making landfall, so there was nothing to worry about. I should note the generals and mayors making this assessment had no clue what the naval defenses of Korea actually were. They were more interested in bossing around flunkies and drawing a check while seeming important to young ladies in their districts. Does any of this sound familiar? You know, when I read about these kinds of people, it kills me inside because it happens so often throughout history. Lesser men rule over kingdoms they have no business even being trash man for, let alone bearing responsibility for an entire province or state. They are puppets more interested in growing their bank accounts than taking care of their own people. I'm reminded of the former governor of the once great state of Alabama, Robert Bentley, a married 74-year-old grandfather who was caught in a salacious affair with a married woman in her 30s. I should note that if he had been caught in his affair by his forefathers, Bentley would have been put to death for violating the formerly sacred covenant of marriage. Here's just a clip of Bentley's putrescent pleadings for his secretary. You kiss me. I love that. You know, I do love that. That... When, you know what? When, when I stand behind you and I, and, I, and I put my arms around you and I put my hands on your breast and, and I put my hands on your ears and just and pull you in real close, I, hey, I, I love that too. <laughs> now, why did I play that clip? Because we don't have audio of the pusillanimous men in charge of defending Korea from the Japanese. But I guarantee you, 
Their private conversation sounded something like a Korean Bentley, the dripping sentimentality, the concerns, and the values of lesser men. Do you know how Napoleon met his carnal desires? He took care of them, and then he forgot about them. France and Europe were Napoleon's real mistresses. If only our political rulers could love our nations like they loved their young concubines. Anyway, back to Korea. So the Japanese let their troops rest overnight in Pusan Harbor, while the local commander, Won Kyun, cried on his mistress's shoulder. The next morning, the Japanese attacked the castle-like walls of Pusan from two different directions. At this point, the Japanese are attacking in two major groups, but one of the groups was counterattacked by Chong Pao, the Pusan Land Forces commander who was out hunting when the massive Japanese fleet filled with tens of thousands of samurai was first spotted. Chong Pao ran back to his post and directed the defenders like a dutiful, award-winning high school conductor leads his students. They performed well, but they were no match for the veteran samurai. A contemporary Korean chronicler remembers Chong Pao's defense like this, quote, In one day, the bodies of the Japanese robbers piled up like a mountain. However... At length, the arrows were exhausted, and all Chong Pao could do was wait for reinforcements, end quote. At that moment, when the arrows had given out, Chong Pao was hit by a bullet and died instantly. With his death, the morale of the Korean defenders collapsed and Pusan was captured. Chong Pao's weeping concubine killed herself next to his body, while Chong Pao's servant rushed headlong into the waiting Japanese long guns, which are roughly like very primitive Revolutionary War flintlock muskets. A line of guns went off, spraying death into the Korean servant who gladly died with his master. Few records are left of the final assault on Pusan, but one novelist described it this way, quote, the commander of one assault strike group, Yoshitomo, took his time. He and his Japanese soldiers cautiously moved forward, sweeping the Korean walls with gunfire and arrows. From the Koreans, there was no answer. Their ammunition had given out. They huddled in fear, the brave already cut down by bullets. Then the Japanese came over the wall on bamboo ladders, one by one. From there on in, it was a slaughter. The samurai katana slicing diagonal cuts of meat off the helpless Korean militiamen just as easily as Delhi workers slice salami. Yoshitomo led the charge. His curved katana seemed to grin at being unsheathed as the sun played on the steel. One moment, diamond-glittering light flashed off the curved sword. The next, it bit into the peasant's pajama-clad arm, sending the limb flying and thick droplets of blood misting through the air. The screams on that day were a wail against death, fear of pain, and the next life co-mixing into a tonic of worry that paralyzed many of the dumbfounded Koreans. Their bodies were like wooden dummies in Japanese training dojos. It was just another training session for Hideyoshi's samurai. End quote. A Japanese contemporary chronicler, Yoshina Jingoza, bombastically describes the final assault on Pusan like this, quote, the Korean arrows fell like rain on our Japanese men, but the sons of the gods did not flinch. Then our men massed their flintlocks in a prickling wall of spitting bullets. On command, the soldiers fired. The noise echoed between heaven and earth, and as the attack continued, shields and towers alike were destroyed. And not one of the enemies stuck his head up. Immediately, our vanguard climbed up the 14-foot walls with a war cry. The brown crust of a fresh-cooked pie seems hard. The spoon rakes across the top 
and the drum-like pastry resists the utensil, but concentrate the spoon on the crust and press deep into the crunching dough, and the soupy meat inside is easily taken. Such was the way our samurai took the city of Pusan. Concentrated, they broke through the crust, and then our heavenly spoon lapped up the yielding contents with ease. We found people running all over the place and desperately trying to hide in the gaps between the houses. The gasping breaths gave them all away. You could hear them for miles. Those who could not conceal themselves were gathered at the east gate where they clasped their hands together and babbled, Mano! Mano! Which was probably them asking for mercy. Taking no notice of what they heard, our troops rushed forward and cut them down, slaughtering them as a blood sacrifice to the god of war. Both men, women, and even dogs and cats were beheaded, and 30,000 heads of various species were seen in a beautiful pyramid of our defeated enemies. End quote. Think of that, listener. A mountain of rolling heads of all species, mostly humans and household pets, but occasionally exotic animals such as birds and horses. Their blank, ceaselessly staring eyes watching for help that never comes. Grimaces set in rigor mortis are as rigid as stones. The birds merrily calling to one another as they dance crab-like from one delightful meal to another pecking away at the gore just as easily as Americans absent-mindedly pick at a buffet-laden plate of cheap food bored by the extensive pleasure of it all such was the bloody start of the imjin war with a tower of human heads to serve as a decomposing monument to a society whose very historians were unaware of a need to even conceal or make tepid justifications for their hardened cruelty the participants and their historians were proud of their 3d collage they had made from human body parts such as the callousness that lurks underneath and behind all the nobler sentiments of mankind as souls and need to note a little bit of that callousness is somewhere in all of us no matter how dormant you think it is by the end of the day pusan harbor was completely in japanese hands everything was going like clockwork for the sons of the gods it was easy as a southerner eating biscuits but there was no rest for the weary after sleeping the night amid the hell-like destruction of Pusan, the first division of the Japanese army pressed deeper into Korea towards the mountain castle fortress of Tongnai, which dominated the main road to Seoul. Tongnai had to fall. But the governor of Tongnai was in no mood to submit to the invaders of his homeland. His name was Song Sang Hyun, and he is still remembered for his obdurate resistance to the samurai beating down his castle walls. Once again, the Japanese presented their demand to Song that the Koreans stand aside and allow the Japanese free passage into China, which amounted to tacit support for the Japanese conquest of Korea. The Japanese commander pointed to the smoldering ruins of Pusan, along with its newly fashioned Tower of Heads, as an example of what awaited Song if he persisted in his resistance. Song Sang Hyun's words are remembered throughout Korea until this day for their defiance. Quote, it is easy for me to die, but it is difficult for me to let you pass. End quote. And so the Japanese came on, thousands of them, swarming up the mountain hillside towards Tongnai's walls, which resembled retaining walls in American gardens. The Koreans stood firm under the onslaught, but the superior Japanese firearms made all the difference. They swept the exposed walls with mass fire, knocking down the Korean defenders like bowling pins. Still, Song Sang Hyun refused to surrender, his men dying all around him. The war inured Japanese easily slashed down the few defenders who survived the gunfire. 
until finally the samurai came for Song himself. Here's how Korean legend records Song's final minutes. Quote, A Japanese warrior cut off Song's right arm with his long sword and his commanding staff. Symbol of his rightful sovereignty fell to the floor, but Song picked it up with his left hand. The sweating Japanese warrior cut off his left arm, and the commanding staff fell to the floor yet again. But this time, Song picked it up with his mouth and held it between his teeth, blood funneling out of his flapping, diminutive armholes, water falling down his side while his noble life's blood pulled beneath him. The third sword thrust killed the unyielding keeper of the fallen city, and so Tong Nai fell. End quote. Now, Song's epic resistance isn't just bullshit. Almost all the contemporary sources, both Korean and Japanese, confirm his resistance was worthy of respect, so much so that the Japanese buried him with utmost honors, which is something deeply impressive when you consider the raging callousness the Japanese dished out to the other Koreans they defeated in battle. One story claims the samurai were so impressed with Song's last stand, they actually executed the Japanese samurai who killed Song as a way to honor their worthy enemy. What was it Carl Schmidt said? Tell me who your enemy is, and I will tell you who you are. And so deeper into the Korean heartland advanced the Japanese, making such quick time. The emperor of China thought the Koreans had secretly gone over to the Japanese. There was just no way they could advance so fast without help. The emperor dispatched diplomats to find out the truth, and they confirmed the Koreans were loyal, just completely unready for the samurai death dealers that were falling upon them. The Korean leaders were incompetent, but not unfaithful. With their bridgehead totally secure and the road to the Korean capital wide open, the Japanese then launched a three-pronged attack towards Seoul, driving into the heart of the Korean peninsula. The Japanese met with little effective resistance as Korean leadership was still disorganized and ill-prepared. Small castles and forts on the road to Seoul fell easily. Many were abandoned or only lightly defended. The Japanese pressed on towards the capital, while reinforcements poured in from mainland Japan and landed unmolested in Pusan. The stunned Korean monarch pinned his hopes on General Sin Nip, who sallied forth to meet the Japanese in open combat at the Battle of Chongjung. There were numerous skirmishes between the armies of the two nations before the Battle of Chungju, but Chungju was the decisive conflict. Korean morale was falling apart. The men in Sin Nip's army looked burned out, exhausted and defeated, with thoughts of running away and hiding in the hills, running a looping track in their minds. The average Korean spirit was so low when a messenger informed a key Korean general that the Japanese had taken yet another important fortress and were just a few miles away, the general had the messenger beheaded. Not because he did anything wrong, but because he was worried the man would run his mouth to the Korean troops and his army would simply dissipate and fall apart. To give you an idea of Korean morale, here's a quote from the Korean General Yi's report to the king of Korea on the Japanese conquest of southern Korea. Say that five times fast. Anyway, here's the quote, quote, the enemy fight like warriors from heaven and no one can match them to your loyal subjects. All that remains is the highway of death, end quote. It was then at this critical point that General Sin Rip, the man who said the Japanese couldn't hit anyone with their newly designed firearms, went out to stop the samurai advance. Vain and foolish, he was the last hope for the property, lives, and even the virginities of many of the Koreans cowering in their homes 
at their nation's capital. If he failed, countless children would be doomed to slavery or ruthless murder. Only one thing stood in the way of the onrushing Japanese, Shunju Castle. More than 8,000 Koreans garrisoned the fortress. It was the Osgiliath to Gondor's Minas Tirith. If it fell, the city of Seoul would face a protracted siege. At best, thousands would die from starvation and incalculable property would be lost. No, Shunju simply could not fall. It was then that General Sin Rip, who had earlier retreated from an almost impregnable mountain fortress, which at the very least would have delayed the Japanese for months, decided he would abandon the stout walls of Shunju, laden with food and water, able to resist any Japanese army for months and rush out to meet the veterans of decades of Japanese civil wars in open combat, setting his alternatively defeated and untested soldiers against the religiously inspired battle-hardened samurai. The Korean officers looked at one another with wide eyes when they heard Sin Rip's plan. You weren't sure if he was leading an army or rolling dice in a game of roulette. Such is the foolish way men's lives are pissed away. In his defense, Sin Rip did think he had an ace up his sleeve. He was betting on his cavalry. The Japanese had few mounted troops, and so Sinrip chose a flat area where he believed his horsemen would literally run death circles around the dumbfounded Japanese foot soldiers, turning the veteran invaders into pincushions with arrows with the speed and mobility of his horsemen. Stephen Turnbull provides this excellent description of the battle location in his book Samurai Invasion. Quote, Sinrip decided to make his stand on and in front of a hill two and a half miles to the north of a key mountain pass he knew the Japanese would have to pass through. From the hill, Sin reasoned, the Korean cavalry could swoop down on the slow-moving Japanese with their flails and long-stemmed battle axes. Sinrip, of course, had not yet faced the radically effective Japanese firearms, and a more disastrous position for an army to adopt can hardly even be imagined. The hill itself is a modest wooded cliff abutting a river. To the south stretched a flat plain. The plain was level, but was totally unsuitable for cavalry action because of the numerous flooded rice fields. But worse still, the hill had a vast expanse of water in its rear where the Talchon River joins the Han in the shape of an inverted letter Y. On the hill, which is fitted neatly within the fork of the letter Y, Sin Rip set up his command post utterly and completely trapped with no room for maneuver and no possible way to retreat. Senior officers did protest Sin's dispositions, but he bluntly told them to shut up as they were generals of defeated armies end quote one look at a map and you can see sin rip was throwing his men's lives away by coming out and greeting the japanese on the plains at shinju there's a map up on the battlecast.com if you want a visual now the japanese couldn't believe their enemy's battle formation when they attacked they split their forces into three battle groups, which attacked the packed together and unmoving Koreans on three separate points. The Japanese formed up in a battle line that resembled a curved smile. They leisurely ordered their lines into place, unmolested by the waiting Koreans. So if you think of a smiling human face with a Roman nose, the Japanese line is the grin and the Koreans are the nose. That's how the two armies face one another at the start of the battle. 
Then the corners of the Japanese smile unleashed devastating rifle fire into the flanks of the Koreans. Meanwhile, the samurai center advanced on the Koreans across the upper lip, straight into the nostrils of the Korean center. The defenders sought to respond to the Japanese rifle fire with arrows. It was useless. The arrows all fell short while the Japanese firearms found their marks. Pajama-clad Korean soldiers fell like leaves in a fall thunderstorm. All the Japanese had to do was stay out of range and keep firing on the Koreans. Panic joyfully ran through the defenders' ranks, the way pleasure runs through the nervous system of a drug addict. The Koreans on the flanks did the only thing they could do. They fell back, but there was nothing but water behind them. That's when the Japanese on the right and left flanks charged, driving their enemies headlong into the fast-running and life-taking rivers behind them. Realizing his desperate situation, Sin Rip tried to lead a cavalry charge into the advancing samurai, but each time he closed the distance between his horse Horsemen and the attackers, he was hit by arrows and was unable to continue the charge. In the end, he saw his horse units disintegrating around him. The men and the very horses themselves sliced and shot apart. One minute, you would see a beautiful champagne-colored horse lining up for a charge. The next second, its head would simply combust in a mini-explosion of blood and brain matter. The horse's body flopping straight down the way a boxer knocks out an opponent. The rider falls to the left before it's his turn and his shoulder explodes in a mini volcano of blood and bone. In this situation, there was no way Sin Rip could try to lead a third charge. It was over. He spurred his horse into the river and killed himself as the crows greedily called out to one another, filling the sky with the teeming blackness of their bodies. Soon, there would be another feast for the carrion eaters. From the sky, God could see the Confucian masters uselessly struggling to cross the ever-widening and fast-running rivers. Thousands drowned. Many more were pulled out of the water and decapitated, their kicking legs trembling after their deaths like toddlers sobbing on the floor of a playroom. Still more dead bodies were dredged out of the water, and their corpses, too, were decapitated. In the end, the Japanese made a new modern art masterpiece with over 3,000 Korean heads. This doesn't include the many men who were drowned in the river itself. It was a total defeat, and now Sewell was denuded in waiting, an easy prize for any man with the balls to take her. Two major groupings of the Japanese army advanced on Seoul in a race to capture the city before the other group. On June 10th, the Japanese arrived at the eastern gate to the capital and could not believe what they found. The city was deserted. The precipitous walls, the high towers, the markets, and the homes were all abandoned. The Japanese foot soldiers simply walked up to the gate the way you absent-mindedly walk into a grocery store. There was a problem, though. The gate itself was locked. It would be no easy thing to get inside. That's when someone noticed a small floodgate in the wall, an eyewitness remembers what happened next. Quote, the floodgate was made out of strong iron and could not be entered. Thereupon, Kido Saku said, this is how to do it. And he disconnected the wooden stock from a firearm and using the barrel as a lever, forced it open. And from inside, they opened the castle gate. End quote. Then the samurai simply walked in to examine their easily won prize. The first thing the victorious army group did, was take control of the still-intact city defenses. When the second Japanese army group approached the gates, an imperious messenger demanded the defenders surrender. A contemporary chronicler recalls the response, quote, 
From inside the castle came the reply, We are Japanese troops. The city is ours. We formed the vanguard and now defending the great gates themselves. The city is ours, baby. If you're on an errand, we can let three or four of you into the city, maybe. Otherwise, you keep out. End quote. Inside the gleaming city, the samurai found hardly anything had been looted before they arrived. True, some buildings had been destroyed. The Korean slaves had made sure to burn down the offices that housed the slave records. Now tens of thousands of Korean slaves were suddenly freed in the chaos of the Japanese invasion. They truly had liberated themselves. However, many of the palaces were in pristine condition and unguarded. Most of the Korean armory was not even evacuated. In the meantime, another Japanese army arrived in Seoul while six more landed at Pusan in order to occupy and subdue the land before pressing on in a great Shinto crusade into the heart of China itself. And after that, who knows? The ends of the earth itself might be conquered by the Japanese sons of the gods. Jin Wong Kim outlines what happened next. Quote, Two days after the defeat at Seoul, the Korean king Songjo escaped to Pyongyang in the north of modern-day Korea, and from there he went to the northern border town of Uju. The Japanese occupied the capital in June, but the entire capital had been abandoned by its inhabitants. After occupying Seoul, Japanese forces divided and took two opposite directions— Konishi Yukonaga's forces pressed on toward Pyongyang near the Chinese border, and Kato Kiyomasa's troops advanced on the east coast towards the Tumen River. The rest of the Japanese armies fanned out across the Korean provinces and subdued them, using major forts as bases for operations. Throughout Korea, the Japanese attempted to impose a system of taxation and land surveys, but Japanese rule was hampered by continual Korean guerrilla raids that grew worse as 1592 bled into 1593, end quote. At the same time, one Japanese army was attempting to take Pyongyang, the last major city that was not already conquered. There was a problem, though. Pyongyang was behind the Taedong River, and the Japanese didn't have any boats to cross the wide, fast-flowing water. Again, the Japanese sent an ambassador to negotiate a surrender with the Korean commander. The two emissaries met on two boats in the middle of the river. Nothing was achieved in the negotiations. The two men might as well have ignored one another. Now the Koreans had 10,000 men secure inside the fortress of Pyongyang, and what's more, the Japanese were far north, stretching their supply lines to the limit. The Koreans decided to attack the Japanese and drive them back to Seoul. Consequently, the Korean military leaders decided to make a night attack on the Japanese camp at 10 p.m., which would be followed by a full-scale attack at dawn. Whatever you want to say about this plan, it certainly was bold. The night attack worked like a hen-pecked husband, deftly and diligently working through his wife's commandments. Just so, the Koreans sliced through hundreds of Japanese defenders in the opaque, murky darkness. Victory was near and the men could feel it. Tonight would be the night the tide turned and the country was finally saved. But then the light came on. The Koreans were exploiting the beachhead their advanced units had made in the night, but these were green troops, unaccustomed to the careful planning and exciting labors of war. The samurai smiled when they saw the Koreans bunched together without adequate protection in their landing and disembarkation zones. Quick as a day trader runs to his computer screen in the morning, so too did the Japanese attack the uncoordinated and undefended rear of the Korean army. They caught the Koreans while a third of them were still crossing the water, bisecting them just as easily as a line bisects another at a 90-degree angle. 
It was a bloodbath. But don't just take my word for it. Here's how one eyewitness describes the massacre. Quote, As the night finally ended and the eastern sky glowed white, the noble Japanese looked out over the banks of the river as 3,000 Korean soldiers, all dressed alike in their white costumes, came out of the castle and swarmed into the shallows, bunching together like fish in a net, just waiting for our samurai to gather their heads. At the head of our troops, the godlike Goto, Yoshida, and Toda crashed into the enemy. Goto wore a helmet, which had a crest of two golden irises, and couched his long, shafted spear from his his horse, running through the squawking Koreans two at a time. Meanwhile, Yoshida wore a sashimono flag of a crane within a circle and a crest of a polar bear on a shaft. The demigods plunged into the midst of the panicking, wide-eyed Koreans, wielding their spears in every direction. Chunks of humanity and misting blood spraying behind them, the way 18-wheelers sputter rainwater as they drive by. End quote. The Japanese were eager for war and for beheadings. One young warrior named Yoshida beheaded his first man during the battle and gladly held the head up for Goto to see. You see, General Goto, I said I would do well. How's this for a young warrior? He held the decapitated, dripping head up by its long black hair for Goto to see, grimacing and grinning, a human jack-o'-lantern. Now the Japanese simply toyed with the Koreans, the way a cat plays with a mouse before delivering the coup de grace. The samurai commanders deliberately allowed a few of the Korean troops to retreat back across the river so they could identify the river's shallow areas and thereby cross the river themselves, and the trick worked. The epileptic retreating Koreans betrayed their own last defense line, and the Japanese army formed up to exploit their newly found river crossings. That same night, the Japanese army began sending careful, stepping, and well-planned detachments across the river piecemeal. Incredibly, the Korean generals concluded further defense of Pyongyang was hopeless, and they ordered their distraught troops to sink their weapons into a pond and abandon the fortress itself. Self-defeatism had accomplished more in one day than what the battle-tempered Japanese could have achieved in one month. By this point, Hideyoshi's armies had conquered more than 60,000 square miles of a well-developed, well-populated territory. He was well on his way to uniting the entire world, a one-world bureaucrat's dream come true. On July 24th, the Japanese crossed the river and occupied the criminally surrendered defenses of Pyongyang. Every Korean citizen and troop in the area had abandoned the city. They even left a feast of grain for the Japanese to gorge themselves on as they planned for further operations to the very borders of China itself. The last major defense line before the border with China was now completely in Japanese hands, and the Japanese land-based supply line in the newly conquered peninsula was totally secure. Up and down the main line of communications, well-entrenched Japanese held the well-constructed castles the Koreans had abandoned without a fight. Now the road of conquest was wide open all the way to China. The Chinese Ming Emperor desperately tried to scrape together an army to blunt the onrushing Japanese tidal wave that would surely come careening through China at any moment. At the same time, Japanese reinforcements were forming in southern Japan for the final push into the heart of the Asian continent, and after that, for the final push into the heart of lands unknown. Hundreds of Japanese supply ships prepared to load innumerable troops and supplies for the final great conquest. They didn't know it, but the Koreans still had one ace up their sleeves. 
His name was Admiral Yi Sun Sin, the greatest military hero of Korean history and one of the greatest military minds in human history. This one man set out to accomplish what an entire nation of his countrymen had failed to do. Stop the Japanese where they were vulnerable, in the water where all their Bushido ethics and battle knowledge gleaned from decades of land warfare would be useless. On the water, the Koreans could meet the Japanese on equal terms. The entire plan was conceived and executed by Sun Sin, and how many of you have ever heard his name? Oh, you ignorant Westerners. How have your schools betrayed your education? So next month you're going to meet a genius you've never heard of before, the renowned Yi Sun Sin. But that's next month's podcast. And that's another one of the books for me, ladies and gentlemen. Before we go, I want to let Professor Choi Byung-hyung explain the impact of the 1592 Japanese campaign. Dr. Choi writes, quote, The Japanese invasion of Korea in 1592 had a tremendous effect on Japan, China, and Korea. First of all, it left Korea broken and exhausted. The palaces, temples, towns, and villages, cultural treasures, and precious books were either reduced to ashes or laid waste. The population was also drastically decreased, being killed during battle, dying from famine, or being abducted to Japan. Although Korea eventually recovered, the essential aspects of Korean society were altered permanently. The people of Japan also were impacted. They were forced to join Hideyoshi's army or support the war through taxes or labor, end quote. And so 1592 and the battles I just recounted changed Korea forever. And I think we can learn something from the Korean experience. The Koreans were content to remain on their shores in peace. It didn't matter. Their warlike neighbors forced them into war. Our enemies influence and impose themselves upon us. We may hate war, we may hate conflict, but as long as the enemy remains, we must prepare for it. And that's as much a part of the human condition as Camus' alleged absurdity of human existence. And so, we come back to the old maxim, those who want peace are best advised to prepare for war. And with that salubrious maxim, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and I'm wishing you good times and good weather with good people. However, before I leave, I want to talk to you about purity and the way. As Yamamoto Sudetomo notes, there are many ways in life. I'm capitalizing the term way here. By way, I mean what Kikagar called purity when he said purity is pursuing one goal to the exclusion of all others. Most people today are pursuing what the elite call self-actualization, what common people call personal happiness, and what devout Christians call self-worship. What do I mean by that? Israeli filmmaker Haggai Levi helps us understand, quote, I think when you enter a marriage right now, you know already that it's conditional. The contract is no longer final. We're together until one of us feels like it's not for them anymore. Both people know it could be temporary when they marry today, end quote. We can note two things from Levi's quote. First, the future of Israel lies with its orthodox population. People like Levi are diminishing on the earth. Second, Levi notes marriage in the modern world lasts until one of us feels it's not for them anymore. That is a way. That is pursuing one thing, namely self-happiness, to the exclusion of anything else. The samurai concept of the way helps us understand ourselves. You young people out there, your parents have been pursuing self-happiness for a long time. You look at them. They are a case study of what selfishness can lead to. Do you think they found happiness? I think many of them found debt 
and dependency. Don't follow that path. There are other ways to follow. You're not so special. You're not important. Billions of people just like you have starved, have been used by ruthless dictators, have been illicitly censored by Soviet commissars and absent-minded social media clerks. It's so easy to censor people. What does that say about your capacity to make yourself happy when you can be shut up so very easily? No, maybe we should pursue character. Maybe we should pursue honor rather than elusive fleeting happiness. The capacity to look sadness in the face, to even look death in the face, can take you beyond happiness to a contentment, beyond joy or sadness, beyond free and surf. Every surf who picks up a blade is really a free man. As Hegel notes, he trades his life for his freedom. Every free man who gladly buckles the shackles on his own arms is already a surf. But don't take my word for it. Hear the words of samurai master Yamamoto, quote, in your life, there are levels in the pursuit of the way. In the lowest level, a person studies, but nothing comes of it, and he feels that both he and others are unskillful. At this point, he is worthless. In the middle level, he is still useless, but is aware of his own insufficiencies and can also see the insufficiencies of others. On a higher level, he has pride concerning his own ability, rejoices in praise from others, and laments the lack of ability in his fellows. This man has worth. But there is still a higher level where a man has the look, but not the substance, of knowing nothing. These are the levels in general, but there is one transcending level, and this is the most excellent level of all. This person is aware of the endlessness of entering deeply in a certain way, and never thinks of himself as having finished. It is never over. He truly knows his own insufficiencies, and never in his whole life thinks that he has succeeded. He has no thoughts of pride, but with humbleness knows the way to the very end. It is said that Master Yagyu once remarked, I do not know the way to defeat others, but the way only to defeat myself. Throughout your life, advance daily, becoming more skillful than yesterday, more skillful than even today. This is the never-ending path of purity. This is the way. End quote. Friends, I've been down the road of scholarship. I've been all the way to the end of the rainbow and back again like a hobbit. I know what's beyond the horizon. When you partied and you chased women, I was in university libraries reading until the huffing security guard kicked me out. And endlessly annoying professors with bothersome questions. It didn't make me many friends, but I went all the way. And in the end, you discover, like Yamamoto, there are very few definitive answers regarding anything. My point is, be wary of men and women who talk down to you, managers who come to preach at you during staff meetings who are bigoted and wave away your sincere questions. Beware of people who don't explain things but instead talk at you or punish you when you ask sincere questions. They are the servants of the emperor who wore no clothes, and you're simply the child who's pointing out that the emperor has no clothes on. I've been to fancy cocktail parties, parties where the men drove cars that cost more than the net wealth of 99% of the people who live in Autumnville. These men and women set policy for institutions and governments influencing the lives of hundreds of thousands of people, but they did not have answers. They are just like the selfish woman who said, Should I be loyal to my husband or loyal to my personal truth? Of course I would choose my subjective truth over a marriage that doesn't bring me fulfillment. How would you feel about a mother who said, Should I be loyal to my child or loyal to my personal truth? There are over 38 million women in America alone 
who have already answered that question by terminating the life of their unborn children. What was it the author of Ecclesiastes said? Everything is vanity and chasing after the wind.